All right, let's, um, <laughs> that's a big idea of today's message. If you're a guest here at Calvary, we're in the third part of a series uh, in, the, in the book of Ruth, and uh, it'll make a lot more sense. Today's kind of, it's, you know, like you're right in the middle of this movie, so if you want to know more about that, go back and read the first couple of chapters. Today we're going to look at the third chapter, and we're going to inch into the fourth chapter just a little bit, but we're saving some of that and saving this big idea of one of the lines that we just sang in that song, that redemption has a name. And that name is Jesus. So that's a big idea of today's message, is that this love, and we're going to see this beautiful love today uh, that, that's godly, that protects, it provides, and it inspires. And the way we're going to apply that to our individual lives, no matter where you are, what season you're in, and this is true if you're high school, if you're a student in college, if you're a single adult, if you're married, uh, make sure that your love respects and honors and blesses, whether that's in the daylight, whether it's public, whether it's just very quiet, whether it's in the night. This morning, as we continue this, uh, this study, this look at the book of Ruth, we see this relationship that's uh, very romantic, okay? This is, this is a love story. It, there's a lot of depth. There's a lot of richness and romance there. But it's also rooted in just this gritty reality of everyday life. Okay? It's not just, you know, so you think, well, that doesn't happen in real life. And that's not the way it is. This, is. this was real life. Now, real quick recap. Uh, remember that Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, had lost her husband and her two sons. This was devastating for her. Uh, they had moved from, uh, you know, Palestine from Judah, Israel, over to Moab and were living there. Great famine came, so they returned to Bethlehem. Uh, and Ruth, this young Moabite woman, now widow, uh, returns with her. She's just clinging to her, uh, literally is what the Scripture says. Now, they are absolutely just dirt poor. But God provides for them through a relative named Boaz. He allows Ruth to glean uh, the field for them. Boaz treats Ruth with special favor. There's something going on there. You see that from the beginning of the relationship. Uh, there's, there's, there's a connection, and there's something that happens bet between them. And, and then we're, we're kind of led to wonder, where's that going to go? Is that going to develop uh, something between Ruth and Boaz, and how's that relationship going to go? So last week, at the end of chapter 2, we stopped with Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field, which was this kind of a cultural thing. And now that leads up to the time of harvest. Okay, so now you're in the story. Now, you and I know that God has a plan uh, for Ruth and Boaz, and that they're going to get married. We, we can see ahead. We've read the end of the book, maybe. We already know that. They're going to be the great-grandparents, actually, of King David. They will be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. God has some great ideas for this couple. But they don't know that yet. Okay? They are where many of you were when you were just dating. Or maybe you got engaged. Or you just were attracted to somebody. Somebody on campus, you're starting to see them. And you think, oh, I'm feeling, there's a little chemistry there. There's something going on. Well, we go into chapter 3. And there's a number of lessons here. 
uh, for us. And I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can through just some of the things that I feel like the Lord spoke to me about. And I'm going to have to go really fast. You're going to have to listen really fast, okay? So like fast ears. Uh, let me read for you the first five verses um, of, of this ch- chapter. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may go well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? Now, when this is relative, I don't want you to think this is creepy or anything. It's distant, and it's, it's, uh, it's a whole different kind of a way of, uh, of culture. Of course, for some of you in East Tennessee, maybe you think, I don't know what you, why, what do you, it makes sense. Okay, with those women you see here, see, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Now, the Old Testament had a law that said if a man died without a son to inherit his property, then his brother or the next closest relative would marry his widow and would father a child uh, to bear the name of the deceased man who would inherit the property. We don't have that. This is actually still in place and still a functioning kind of a thing in some parts of the world, believe it or not. Now, it wasn't exactly a crime if he didn't do it, but it would be dishonorable. It would be awkward. It would be kind of embarrassing. It would be disgraceful for the woman if he refused to do it. So Naomi says, well, Boaz is our kinsman. Uh, I know between the lines you guys really like each other. That's pretty obvious. Let's ask him. Step up to his responsibility. Uh, And he's shown a lot of favor. Like I say, there's obviously a relationship going um, that's there. So Naomi comes up with this idea, and it's really pretty brilliant. And it's such a mom it's such a uh, your favorite aunt or what that person, whoever it is, that's the matchmaker in, in your peer group, you know, that says, I, I've got an idea. I know what to do. And she tells Ruth, put some perfume on, get out that best dress, you know the one, uh, and, and ladies, guys, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Um, <laughs> I could go off on that for just a minute, but I'm not. But she tells Ruth, go down to the threshing floor. Once you're all dressed up, you're looking good, you're smelling good, you know, go down to the threshing floor. Boaz and the whole town will be there because it's the end of the harvest, and it's kind of a festival. You know, like next week we're having trunk or treat or something. This is like that times 100 on steroids, okay? It's a big, big deal. They have finished, and they're going to have this big party, and they're going to celebrate that. So the threshing floor is not just the place to work, but it's kind of like some of you have office parties or whatever. They take that environment and they turn it into a place to celebrate. Now, at the end of that, Boaz is really tired. He's worked all week. He's pulled all this together. He's kind of the guy, and so he's, he's tired. So he's going to stay out there, however, to guard the barley. All right, somebody's got to stay with it. Uh, I've been on mission trips where... Um, we slept in our pharmacy on medical mission trips so that people, you, because you just had to guard that because it was just kind of a valuable thing. So he's there, and uh, Naomi says, wait until he's alone, wait until he's asleep, and then, and this is the part that your matchmaker probably wouldn't think of, uh, and if you want to try this, the next thing, okay, uncover his feet, and 
then kind of get in there where you can re recover those and cover yourself as well. Now, this happens and Boaz wakes up and you know, then he's going to find <laughs> that, oh, there's a, there's a girl lying here under, at my feet. And she says, and you, you just let him take it from there. Now, that sounds like an implication. It sounds like an insinuation or maybe that something sensual is about to happen or, you know, that's going with this. And that's not the, not the case at all. It's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh, and Naomi is betting on Boaz's outstanding character. Okay, she believed Boaz to be a man of integrity and a man of purity. And she knew that she could trust Ruth in this situation. What she does, Naomi acts upon an opportunity that was initiated by God. All these pieces are in place, and there's movement, and there's momentum to what is happening here. Naomi has one of those personalities and that faith. She is this woman who can step back and, and see all of this and think, okay, let's, let's make a plan. Let's bring this together. God is the one who allowed Ruth to be singled out by Boaz. He's the one who put it in Boaz's heart to give her special treatment. He's the one who made provisions, even in the law, for this whole kinsman-redeemer idea to be in place beforehand. And in coming up with this plan, Naomi's just following you know, the, the next thing. She's doing what we talk about sometimes. She's just doing the next right thing. You know, She just sees the signpost and thinks, you know what would make a lot of sense right now? Um, somebody needs to make the first move. Somebody needs to take another step. Folks, sometimes we have these uh, opportunities, or we see these, these opportunities that God places right in front of us. And sometimes it's wrong just to sit back passively and wait for God to do something. I know that sounds a little bit like, well, I don't know. I just, I'm just going to have faith. And the Lord's like, I'm, have faith, but I'm doing this. Look, I've, I've brought all of these things right to you. I brought this person into your life. I've, I've you know, orchestrated this circumstance. So this is, this is me working in that. And we think, no, I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait until God just barges the door down. But he might not do that. And sometimes just passively sitting is a way to procrastinate or it's because you're actually not being faithful because you don't have the faith to take that next step and it's a little scary, it's a little risky and, and basically that it's just sanctified defeatism and we're thinking, no, I'm just not going to do that. Now, there are times in life that you wait and you just be still and you just trust God. But when God has given you some real possibilities and some real indications and some real, just some solid things to act on. And your spirit is in agreement with his spirit. And there's no check and there's no moral issues. And anything. It's okay to take that next step forward. It may be wrong for you to just sit back and do nothing. That's not trusting God. That's presuming upon God. So it actually requires a lot more faith to do something like taking the initiative in the way that Naomi did. And I, I think, I'm just going to say this, and this part's, you know how sometimes Paul would say, this is from God and you need to really pay attention? And every now and then Paul would say, and this is just my idea, I just want you to know, you can put this in the Bible and put it in Scripture, but I'm, I just thought this up. Well, I just thought this up. 
I think single men and sometimes single women need to take the initiative based on the signals that God's provided you. Guys, sometimes you need to pull out your phone and just ask her out. Okay, you need to, and the first thing we see here is that Naomi sees the opportunity, and this is going to be a reverse situation. Not now. I didn't mean now. Put your phones up. I, seriously, stop. Now, but sometimes, you know, you, and I've seen that, and I've seen that with some of you guys. You, you hesitate, or you hold back, and you think no, and then that ship sails, and you go, ah, you know, okay, step up. All they can do is say no, and Trust me, I've heard that so many times. You, it's okay. All right. God came up with a plan. Let's look and see what happens next. Look at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and, and drunk and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of this uh, heap of grain, then she came softly. We need background music right here, right? She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, how much, how much drama do you want, right? I mean, how much romance? The man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Yeah, that would, you know, this is the Bible. You need to read the Bible. And he said... <laughs> And this is a great first line. This is, this is how you know the Bible's the Bible, not a Hollywood scriptwriter, because he doesn't say something really cool and James Bondish. He goes, who are you? <laughs> and she answered, I'm Ruth, <laughs> your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Everything up until now, between Ruth and Boaz, had pretty much been in public. Now, every day they see each other. They've been working in the same field. You know, she's been joining him. So for months now, she's kind of following these, these uh, farmers, you know, this, these gatherers and, uh, around, and she's working in the same field. And don't you know, they did just what you do. They find a way to be at the same place at the same time. I mean, he looks across the field, and he sees, oh, Ruth's taking a water break. And he's thinking, I'll just happen to mosey on it. Ruth, I, I didn't even see you here, girl. How are you doing? You know, and they, and they, they talk. This was going on and on, and a romance developed, but it had always been out in the open, always been public. It always just seen her on campus or just, you know, at some place at church. Tonight is, is different. Uh, they see each other, and uh, this, this moment has come. And they've been in the same fields. And, 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 and now they've come to this moment. And they have fallen in love. And you feel the tension. And Ruth's heart is just pounding out of her chest. And she's thinking, what am I doing? What am I, I'm, I'm going home. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I am going to do this. You ever had that feeling? You know, you think, I'm going to knock. I'm not going to knock. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit send. I'm not going to. I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm, no, I'm not going to. And she's feeling that. Boaz is tired. Typical guy. He has no clue what's going on. He's been to the party. He's so full. He's just, I'm going to sleep. So he lies down and he falls asleep. And this dark figure comes tiptoeing in, lies down beside him, and gently folds back his cloak from his feet and then, and then puts it back. Now, sometimes later, around midnight, Boaz wakes up, bends forward, and he senses somebody's there. 
And the writer says in one version, behold, a woman was lying at his feet. I don't know if you ever had, but behold is right. I mean, and, and he can't see that well. This is before, you know, he didn't have any lights or anything. So he, all he knows, it's a woman, but he can't tell who it is. So he, he kind of strains in the darkness and says, who, who are you? It's me, Ruth. Oh, hi, Ruth. <laughs> and she not only answers the question, I want you to see this because she's going to take it a big step forward. And like I said, sometimes you got to take the initiative. Sometimes you got to take the next step. So she takes the next step. And she says, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Did she work on that line? Did she, was that, why did she say? That is an idiom. That, what that means in today's language is, hey, Boaz, it's me, Ruth. Will you marry me? She proposes to him. And it symbolizes, you know, this man's willingness to protect this woman as his wife. That's what that's all about. Boaz had said to her out in the field already, do you remember this from, from the previous chapter? May your wages be full from the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So what Ruth is saying is, you remember the other day when you said that about um, those wings and the, the Lord's wings over me? I was just thinking, maybe you're the protection that you prayed for. Sometimes you're the answer to your prayer. Sometimes you have the resources. Sometimes you're praying for somebody and the Lord says, well, why don't you go over there and fix their car? Why don't you send them a check? Why don't you go over there and help them? Why you may be the answer to the prayer. <laughs> Boaz, this is so cool because Boaz says, uh, yeah, I guess I could do that. I guess I would be the one. Now, let me tell you something a little bit about this culture and about what's happening here. Uh, Jewish weddings are sometimes performed under a prayer shawl and it's held up on these, these four poles during the ceremony, and the, and the couple gets under it. And in Mideast culture, they'll, sometimes they'll cast a garment over the one being claimed in a marriage. And in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, the word translated border or corner is a Hebrew word that is also translated wings. It occurs... 76 times in the Bible. Now, the corners of the prayer shawl are called wings. Now, this is a small and this is a modern day one. Oftentimes, a prayer shawl would be much longer and the fringes, the wings, the corners, that's this part. And you see all of these knots and these fringes? That's what this is talking about. And it occurs that many times in Scripture. In Ezekiel 16, 8, the Lord speaks to Jerusalem and says, and I will spread my wing over thee and I will cover thy nakedness. In Psalm 91, it says, we are to abide under the shadow of the Almighty and under his wings. And that was a picture of when someone would get under their prayer shawl and they're covered. It's a covering uh, from the Lord. So in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9 She's at the feet of Boaz, and this was much longer, and uh, she, he is just, he's moved with her vulnerability and just her tenderness, and women were really not to go this far. They were not to do something of this nature quite this explicit in that day, 
but in just complete transparency and honesty and just this sweetness and openness. And maybe it was because she was from Moab and they had this custom too, but maybe it wasn't as developed or as much, so she didn't know that, oh, you're being a little bit inappropriate. You're not supposed to do that. And I think there was something maybe in Boaz that he he felt drawn to that. He kind of liked that. So she says, take me under your wing. So when she pulls this back off his feet and then she covers herself with that, it was very symbolic and it was very significant. And even the word cover me is a term uh, that's very intimate, very, very personal. Now there's a still, there's a custom that prevails at Orthodox Jewish weddings to this day. When a bridegroom covers his bride with this, his prayer shawl, his tallit, and he will cover her with that, and the tassels will be at, at each corner, signifying, I have taken you under my care. You're under, you're under my provision now. And so this, this skirt, this edge with the tassels that Boaz had would doubtless be uh, covered just, just like this with this fringe. And that indicated his status. It communicates not only, uh, you know, what it, what it is, but it, but it has with it that this is attached to that person and speaks of who they are. So this request by Ruth for his protection and care is symbolized uh, by these, these tassels and these fringes that would cover her. We don't exactly have anything like this uh, in our culture. As you can see, the hem of the garment was decorative and, and it, was, it was very beautiful and it made a statement about the status and how, the, how important, you know, it could be very plain or it could be very elaborate and very fancy, just like our clothes today. And the people from other nations had this. In fact, uh, in text found in Mesopotamia, references indicate that the removal of this fringe, when you cut this edge off of a man's garment, it was the equivalent of removing his personality. To cut the hem off of a a wife's garment was regarded as divorcing her. Tablets have been found with the impression of that fringe pushed into the clay as a mark of who that individual was. It was like a personal seal or a signature. Even in New Testament times, ordinary people would wear a tallit like this on special occasions. It was the Pharisees who liked to wear it every day. And they made theirs very elaborate. In some cases, they would make it very long. And they just wanted to be seen in it. And theirs were very nice. And it was very showy. Jesus expresses even a disapproval for that custom. And he condemns them. He says, oh, you wear these extra long fringes to display, you know, how holy you are. And it just came across as self-righteous. That's in Matthew 23, 5. So the hem of this garment, this prayer shawl, this tallit, indicated the rank or the personality or who a person was. I'll give you an illustration of that. You remember when David spared Saul's life? He could have killed him in that cave. But he took something away that was evidence that he had power and restrained himself and didn't use it over Saul. In 1 Samuel 24, 5, it says, Then David arose, and he cut off the skirt, the hem of Saul's robe. 
Why did David do this? And why did his conscience bother him for doing that? And some of you may think, you know, well, I never really thought about that. I just knew he cut off a piece of his clothes maybe to prove that he was there. It says, no, he cut off a specific part, and then he felt, he felt this guilt about that because the act of cutting off this fringe of, Paul's, of Saul's robe, I mean, I'm sorry, was of great significance because Saul recognized, Saul knew exactly what David was saying. David had robbed Saul of his status symbol. The fringe that identified him as the king. And David had that. And he said, I could have had your life. But I do take your kingship. Do you remember the prophet Elijah? And scripture says that he, in 2 Kings 2, that he passed his mantle on to Elijah. Guess what the word is for that? That this mantle was actually his prayer shawl. And as he's taken up to heaven in this chariot and this, and this prayer shawl falls back, that this becomes very significant, this symbolic prayer that Elijah had just saturated this, this, this talit with. And he leaves it behind in this whirlwind as he goes to heaven. And it becomes a status symbol. Guess who else wore one of these? Jesus himself. Jesus sometimes wore one. Remember the story of the woman who touched the hem, and it says literally the wings, the fringe of his garment in Luke chapter 8? What was the significance of the hem, and why would she stoop to touch that? And it brings this healing. I mean, if he is wearing, and it would have been much longer, if he's wearing this and he's walking through a crowded area, wouldn't it have made more sense for her to touch his arm or his face or his hands or or just to, to reach out to him? But no, she makes a very intentional movement to touch this fringe, to grab hold of this wing. And when she does that, there is this flow and this power of healing that goes out of Jesus and other people it says in that same scripture in Mark chapter 6 that as they touched the borders or the tassels of his clothes that they were healed Malachi 4.2 says but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings That's probably one of the best-known miracles of Jesus, healing on that occasion with the lady who had suffered from this hemorrhage for 12 years. And in Matthew 9, she just touches that tassel of Jesus' prayer shawl, and she's healed. In Hebrew, these tassels that are attached to the corners that you can see are called tzitzit, and she stoops to touch that. During the first century, there's several occasions where this is mentioned. And it's always connected. There's so many times where this is connected to Messiah and to prophecies about God. Each one of those little knotted fringes possessed this healing power that God would bring. And she knew that. An ancient Jew under the prayer shawl could be said to be, and this is, would be common, Dwelling in the secret place of the Most High and under his wings. Psalm 91. 
For Ruth, this was a bold and risky step of faith. She's putting everything on the line. I mean, she's risking rejection, embarrassment, humiliation. I mean, what if the next thing Boaz says is, Oh, Ruth, oh, I, oh, I am so embarrassed. I'm so sorry, but no, I, if, if, if it came across like I was flirting with you, I'm so sorry, but no, I just, I don't have, this is not about that. And this is, I mean, she just puts herself out there in faith. And not only do we see the opportunities that God has provided, but sometimes you take that next step of faith and you risk it. And when she does that, it brings Boaz to this moment, to this point of decision. Look at verse 10. And he said, this is his response. May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz is real quick to calm her fears, and he says, it's basically, he's saying back to her, oh, Ruth, I love you too. And my answer is, yes, I will marry you. Uh, It's turned around a little bit from what is typical. But he begins, I love this, he begins by blessing her and by speaking kindness to her. And the word that he used when he says everybody knows that this kindness of yours, the trademark, the characteristic, what everybody thinks about when they think of Ruth is the word kindness. In Hebrew, it's the word hesed. We just don't have a word for it in English. We do not have a word that directly translates. One of the best ways that we might can come up with to capture the idea is, is, is just loyal love. Love that sticks with you. He says that this last hesed is even better than the first. She just gets better and better. She just gets kinder and kinder, sweeter and sweeter. Her first act was her decision to leave Moab out of devotion to Naomi. She leaves her country, leaves all her friends, family, everybody she knows, goes into a completely different place because she's so committed and so kind to Naomi. And it's also an act of kindness, not just done out of loyalty to Naomi, but she has fallen in love with Boaz, and that translates to him as kindness. He says, I I know you came here because of Naomi, but they just, they look into one another's eyes, and he goes, but there's something else now, right? This isn't about Naomi. This is about us. This is about you and me. And that same kind of kindness that I have seen you show and that everybody in the town knows about, I'm about to get that directed to me. I mean, Ruth is a catch. She's a good catch. You know, she's, like, I'm sure she's beautiful. She's got all these, but she, there's just this, this, uh, this kindness, this, this loving personality that comes across with that. And she says, you know, we're going to keep the terms of, of what this law says. And we're going to, you know, our firstborn is going to kind of be under Naomi. And, um, you know, to continue that line of Elimelech, her deceased husband. And I'm sure Boaz 
probably never expected when he was a little boy to, to marry a Moabite woman. They were at war with these people, and, they, it was a, and he probably never thought, I'm going to grow up and marry a Moabite girl. I, there's something about them. I just really, But that's often how it is in marriage. You don't marry who you thought you would or the kind of person, and you make a list, and this is what I want, and some of that I know that's okay, and some of it's in fun, and some of it's serious, but you just be ready for who the Lord might bring into your life. And it may not be exactly like you thought. It could be a Yankee. I don't know. It could be somebody from Alabama. I don't know. I don't know. Wouldn't that be something for you to marry an Alabama girl? Um, That's how it is in marriage sometimes. In verse 11, he says, I will do what you ask. And I will take you as my wife. I think that was just a powerful moment. And then notice what he says, for all my people, everybody in town knows that you are a woman of excellence. You are. I've been watching you in the fields every day for months. This was not just love at first sight. This was a love that was born out of watching each other, working together in the ordinary everyday dayness of life and just this gritty from one day to the next where you're not dressed up where you're not at your best where you're tired when it's hot and you've worked all day and you're sweaty and you're dirty and he looks across the field and thinks oh my goodness we see Boaz's kindness as well and the way he speaks of her he says you're a woman of substance it's not just your outward beauty. There's something else that draws me. There's something else that's compelling about you. And so he just, he champions her as this woman of, of dignity and of grace and of worth. He doesn't treat her like a lot of people might have treated her. Oh, you're that Moabite slave girl that's dirt poor that's come over here to, get, to eat our food. Well, you know, no, he says, you are an equal and I'm fortunate to have you, and, and you are just this precious gift. Throughout this passage, I want you to see that every person is acting with a view for the welfare of others. They're acting with hesed. It's just all over this story. It just, it just covers it just like this prayer shawl would cover Boaz. Naomi's concerned that Ruth would find security. Ruth's concerned that Naomi would find somebody to carry on her husband's name. Boaz is concerned and willing to fulfill his responsibility to the clan and to champion Ruth's dignity and worth and who she is. Everybody's concerned about somebody else. Nobody in this story is saying, well, what am I going to get out of this? What about me? Everybody's motivated by hesed and kindness towards someone else. Beautiful things happen in a family, in a marriage, in a relationship, in a life, in a church, when that principle is activated, when we're living for each other. When we talk about love and romance, oftentimes, you know, we we don't include that. We seldom hear about the kindness and the loyalty from the other person. But this focus, you know, on what I need and what I want and, oh, he fits the bill or, oh, she's just what I... No, these people in this story have something bigger than they're just their own feelings and their own wants and concerns. 
They're looking at the other people. Men, you need to ask yourself. And those of you who are single, and maybe there's not a woman there yet in the picture for you, you need to ask this question. Those of you who are dating or engaged or married, you need to to ask this question. Am I willing to spread my wings over a woman? Am I willing to champion her as a woman of excellence? Will I be kind? Will I be hesed? Women, you need to ask, am I willing to have this covering of protection over me? Am I willing to respect and to love, to follow this man? To give him myself. You know, if we just stopped reading the story right here and it ended, wouldn't that be a great place? You'd think, well, looks like everything's going to end happily ever after. And it could be a Disney movie cartoon and they just ride off, you know. And if you just stopped right there. But just like every good love story, there's a little bit of an obstacle. There's something that stops right here. In verse 12 and 13, we find out what that is. He says, and now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So just lie down until morning. He said, there's another guy in front of me in line. <laughs> there's somebody else that has, that's closer in relation Uh, Then Boaz is, and he has first right of refusal. And he may say, no, actually, yes, I would like to take Ruth. Or he may say, no, really don't want to do that because then she's going to get everything and then she's going to, we have kids and they're going to inherit that. I've already got a family. I've already got kids. And so he has that choice to make. What if he wants her? Then then this, this love story, they're apart forever. Would he treat her as somebody, I have the right to possess this person? Or would he say, no, that's okay. He shows his integrity. Boaz shows his integrity by his willingness to stay within the limits of the law and to only have her on God's terms. Sometimes our integrity is tested. In verse 14, it says, So he laid his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came down to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And then it says, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that this man had done for her, saying, and these six managers of barley he gave back to me, for he said, you must not go empty-handed back to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles this matter today. He's in love. He's like you know what, I'm going to get right on this. I'm not going to wait around a couple of days. And this is something else. You know, I talked about sometimes you need to move forward and God's giving you the opportunity and you think, I think I will. I think I'll do that next Friday. Or I think I'll, after the weekend, we've got a lot going on this week. I'm just going to wait. No, go now. He says, I'll do it in the morning. I'm going to, you go ahead and lie down. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and just start heading that way so that I'm there when the doors are opened. When this guy gets up and has breakfast, I'm going to be waiting on him. 
Boaz shows his heart and he's ready to go. And he loads her down with this food. And one of the things that I love about this is that you remember when Ruth and Naomi first came back to Bethlehem? And all her friends saw her and they hadn't seen her in so long. And it's this sweet reunion. And they all look at her and go, Naomi, you're back. Naomi, Naomi. And she is so broken, so poor. And she's lost her husband and she's lost her two sons. And she just comes dragging back into town. And she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Change my name. What do you want us to call you now? Bitter. Bitter's my new, hashtag bitter. That's my new, that's my new name. Why? She says, because I left with a husband and two sons. I left full, and I'm coming back empty-handed. Look, I have nothing. And I love this story. Because now she comes back, and, and Boaz is so sensitive, and we see his kindness and how what he has promised by putting the, the tallit over his bride, and he says, I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to cover you, and I'm going to provide for you. That's all that spoke of. It's almost like from that very first moment, he goes, oh, and by the way, here's six measures of barley. Take these back to Naomi and tell Naomi, you're not empty-handed anymore. This is just a, a taste. This is just an indication of what's to come, what I'm going to do in the future. I'm going to take care of you too. That's how love works. That's how loving kindness works. That's how Hesed works. So he didn't just talk about what he was going to do from the very first moment of their relationship, from the very first moment that they say, I do, and that they're now engaged and ready to be married. He takes the next step and says, okay, I'm going to show you. I'm already going to share what I have with you. So Naomi's no longer empty. The chapter ends with them waiting, just like in chapter 2. They're waiting for a sign of this patient trust they had in the Lord. Because, listen, sometimes it's time to act in bold faith. And you need to get up and act. Then there's times just to wait in quiet faith. There comes a time when all you can do is just stand by and wait and pray. That's okay. There comes a time when you are powerless to change anything, to do anything, to take everything forward. God's plans sometimes happen by waiting, by trusting, and by praying. And you look back on your life and you think, oh my goodness, if I had moved ahead with that, if I had gone in that direction, if I had done that, I would have messed up everything. But because I was willing to step back and say, Lord, I've done all that I can do. I'm not going to do what you can do. I can't do that. I'm just going to wait for you. I'm just going to trust. I took the opportunity. I took the initiative. I stepped forward. Now I'm going to wait for you to see what you do next. And we're going to stop at that place of the story and we're going to finish it. Uh, next week we're going to finish this series and we're going to look at how Boaz is a picture, an example, a foreshadow of our Redeemer, Jesus. That's what this whole story is about. That's, that's everything. The Redeemer. Our Redeemer is Jesus. And you cannot read the book of Ruth without fully grasping that concept because it's there 
from the beginning until the end, the story. And refusing uh, to do things their own way, they just act in accordance in their relationships, in what they do on God's terms. So when we're willing to wait, God will do what you can't do. And that even means your salvation, your redemption. There's a scripture that I'm going to connect to this in, in Luke. Um, in Luke 22, it's a familiar story for, for many of you. On this last night, and there's a lot of drama, but it was a typical night of celebration for a lot of the Jewish people who understood this story and had lived in the rhythm uh, with that their entire lives. So the disciples and Jesus have gathered in the upper room, and it was Passover. And for us, an equivalent might be like Christmas Eve. And they're all gathered there, and the gifts are there, and the, you know, the tree is up, and the wreaths, and you know, all the Christmas food, and all the traditions that your family has done, and the stockings are hung, and you think, okay, it's Christmas, and we've done this so many times, and we know exactly how it's going to be, and Jesus said, well, go and prepare everything, but on this night, this night, something different, something amazing, something incredibly significant happens, because Jesus will step up and show, I am the Redeemer. They knew this story. In verse 19, if my eyes can focus on this, uh, it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, we've read this so many times. And just like these guys had done Passover, if they were probably in their 20s and their 30s, and they thought, we've done this 30 times. Nobody's ever said that before. This is never, this is Passover. He should have held it up and said, oh, this is all about Moses. Everybody knows the story. You've done Christmas. How many times have you done Christmas? 40 times, 50 times, 60, 80 times? We do a communion service here at Calvary every Christmas Eve, and it's one of my favorite services, and I love it. But can you imagine on that Christmas Eve service, if you come this year, and I were to hold up one of the elements, the bread or or the wine, and, and and I were to hold that up and to say, this year we're going to do a little something different for Christmas Eve. We're not going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We're going to celebrate my birthday. Now, it's not till June, but we're going to celebrate my birthday, and I've got some baby pictures I'm going to show you, and from now on, Christmas is going to be all about me. I mean, how many of you would leave the church? How many of you would think, we've never done Christmas about Dan? No, we're going to name it Danmas now. We're going to do this whole thing, and we're going to get this started, we're going to get this movement started, and everybody's invited, so I need you to help me. I mean, you would think, this is, this is outrageous. What was it in the disciples' heart that caused them to lean in and to say, okay, even Passover has changed. It's not even about Moses and all of that anymore. The Passover, it's not about that. Jesus said, from now on, it's about me. I 
am the Redeemer. I am the one you've been waiting for. And it changed everything. Boaz coming into Ruth's life would absolutely change everything. There would come King David, then there would come Jesus himself. The world was changed. At Christmas, at Passover, we are changed because of our Redeemer, Jesus. I'm going to ask our servers to come forward, and, and we're going to celebrate together our Redeemer. And we're going to do this in a traditional way today. Whatever your background, tradition that you've come from, or denomination, you've probably...